This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I am so excited to welcome Tiffany Cross to the show. Tiffany is going to talk about how empowering and employing people of color in the media is essential for preserving democracy. Tiffany, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Very excited to have this timely conversation. Oh, my dear. Thank you. It is much needed. And I am just devouring your book. I've got an early galley copy and I just can't put it down. So I want to start right off the bat. You have a great quote that opens the book. When media gatekeepers whitewash the American experience, they destroy democracy at the same time. So tell us more. Set up the whole concept for this book. Sure. So I really wanted to focus on two powerful entities in United States politics. And one was black voters and the other was media. And so often these things run uh, parallel to each other, but I would argue just as often they can run contrary to each other. And so I wanted to examine and highlight the ways that that has had a direct impact on our democracy. And what I discovered was that there were multiple Um, verticals in which democracy had been damaged because uh, Black voices were left out of editorial coverage. So much of what we know about our politics is filtered through media. And so uh, when the, the viewing audience who, you know, has decreasingly read papers and mostly rely on cable news, um, the cable news echo chambers to, to inform them, That has left a disconnect between voters and politicians because every political conversation we have in the media landscape until very recently centered white people, white people's finances, white people's history, white people's labor stats. And so when we didn't cover things like police brutality, that cast a dark shadow over a lot of issues. When we didn't cover things like voter suppression, that cast a dark shadow over a lot of issues. When we only spoke to voters in diners where no black or brown people ever ate, apparently, that cast a dark shadow on democracy. And the end result in many ways was Donald Trump. But I would argue that even before this administration, there were damaging policies set in place because there was not a lot of effort to inform, uplift, or educate the rising majority of uh, the United States. And gosh, this is a critical time, right? We are months away from the election. I mean, it is palpable. We can all feel the tension and the anticipation. And again, referencing your book, you talk about how African-American women had the highest voter participation by group in the general elections of 2008 and 2008. 12. And you talk about how this is a powerful voting block, but often it's dismissed as something that's really amorphous. So tell us more about that. What, What really happened behind the scenes and can we mitigate this for 2020? I think we have to, and we will. Um, I I think what happens behind the scenes in in cable news uh, editorial decision-making meetings is that not a lot of people reflect the rising majority. And so the perspective uh, and the coverage tends to be myopic. I I write about my own personal journey in newsrooms uh, when I was just in my early 20s, 20 years ago, and navigating this space for the first time and what people didn't know and how uh, information that was relevant and important to me was summarily dismissed 
by people who didn't look like me and did not value my input. And so you see the same thing happening now. Um, I think a great example is how we tend to talk about voters. And so when you uh, watch the cable news landscape, there are a lot of people who say, um, you know, college-educated white women or uncollege-educated white men or working-class white voters. However, when you get to Black voters, it's one blanket statement, the Black vote. Mm. And so I argue Black voters disaggregate in that same exact way, except we are not afforded cute little colloquialisms like NASCAR dads or soccer moms, even though we very well could fall into any of those categories. And there's a whole slew of categories that are specific to our communities. But when you don't have people there with any intellectual curiosity until multiple people are murdered on camera, then imagine the the message that sends to this hugely important block of voters. Um, and then the narratives that I think tends to uh, get spun. And, you know, I, I mean, we have to talk about the role that white women play um, in enabling that narrative um, or enabling this political landscape. When 53% of, of, of white women cast votes for Donald Trump, um, I, I remember I emailed a friend of mine and, and who happens to be a white woman, and I said, hey, conversations need to happen. And she emailed me back and said, great, when do you want to talk? I'm like, no, no. not with me, with each other. Conversations <laughs> need to happen. Because I know I don't know people like that in my life, but if 53%, they, they, the people I know must know those people. And right. so, um, you know, the fact that we were just summarily left out of the conversation and dismissed as people who didn't show up in 2016, uh, which was a very false narrative perpetuated by the media, um, I, I think it's something that we had to take a pause and say, wait a second, how exactly did we get here? And the media, when they, their, their, uh, their conclusion, I would say, they thought, man, how do we get this so wrong? And their, in their attempt to overcorrect the problem, their takeaway was, we did not pay enough attention to Trump voters who did not feel heard. Imagine how that felt to the overwhelming majority of Black women who have long risked their life and their livelihoods to show up and cast ballots. That the takeaway in the media was, oh, we didn't pay enough attention to the racists. You know, let's elevate them. Let's highlight them. And so what you saw after the election is multiple panels of Trump voters. And you listen, you know, to, to people try to clumsily talk through policy that didn't make sense. And so for people who have always been pragmatic voters, who have always taken our economics into the ballot box, who've always taken our economic anxiety with us everywhere, to have the reaction be, let's highlight, elevate, and center this group of people. And I don't remember panels like that during the Obama administration. I don't remember panels of Black women who also disrupted a political dynasty, who also changed the lineage of the presidency. There was not this intellectual curiosity. There was not an attempt to understand the backstory of these people. There were no policy discussions centered on these people. And so, you know, I, I, I honestly, I was uh, uh, outraged but also, I just wanted to pour something into this body of work to show, look look at what we're doing. Look at what we've created. And how has that served this democracy? It hasn't. And so by evolution or by force, this landscape politically and in terms of the media has to change. And you, you talk about empowering and employing 
people of color in the media to change the narrative, right? And frankly, preserve democracy. Are we moving the needle? I mean, do, do we see uh, black men and women, uh, men and women of color in college studying journalism? Is there a shift? Is it something they find interesting and attainable? Well, I write about this as well. So, you know, when I was younger entering this business, it was really challenging and it's only gotten more so. Um, people, you have to intern, you know, you have to learn the ways of the business. Internships help you. However, most news internships don't pay. So then mm. when you look at that and look at the wealth gap between white, white people and really everybody else, but since we're talking about black people, I'll say black people, how many people come from families where they can afford to go intern in a space where one of the major television networks operate, which is Atlanta, DC, New York, to a lesser extent, LA, can afford to live there for three months, having no income and no pay. So that's the first part of just the entree into this space. Then you show up and there are not a lot of people who look like you. There are some people, because we have moved the needle a bit, but not a lot of people in editorial decision-making positions, not a lot of people in the C-suite, not a lot of people in the corner office. When I entered this business, I worked alongside people whose parents were um, friends with the senator who made calls. I worked alongside daughters of ambassadors. Most of us don't get to ride our last names into fame or into success. Most of us have a very different path to enter this space. And so, yes, there are people out there who would love to pursue this industry, but uh, they have uh, economic challenges and they have to pursue industries that perhaps pay more or perhaps value them more or perhaps are not as subjective um, and, and how and who gets promoted or, or how they get promoted. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. Um, someone said to me um, that she she disagreed with my assessment of the media because she sees people of color on her television all the time. And I asked her, name five women of color who host television shows on any cable news network. She couldn't do it, of course. Not that there aren't any, but there certainly aren't five. I said, name five white women who host television shows on any cable news network. Off the top of her head, she did it. This is the point I'm making. So yeah. it's not enough for us to beg for a seat at the table, but I'm really encouraging people to take 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 helm, sit at the helm of the table and, and not ask for a seat. And so I hope um, as, as the United States deals with this racial reckoning centuries in the making, I hope that that's the power shift that will accompany this cultural shift. So Tiffany, your book is called Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. How can young Black women get involved and really use their power of their voting rights? Well, there really is no shortage of ways that people can get involved. And that's at a, a local level, at a state level, at a federal level. I always tell people, work on a campaign. Find someone you believe in and work on their campaign because that's where you get to do everything. You can canvas, you can do field work, you can do communications, uh, you can do strategy. There's always too much work and not enough people, which is a great position for young people to be in because then you really get to flex your muscles and spread your wings. If people, um, and, and it, it can fall if you're an activist, if you're a writer, any, any field you go into, you will be the better for it having worked on a campaign. But there are also national organizations, and there are also things that people can do individually on their own. At this point, um, mail-in balloting is under attack. And so I think there are young people who can not only register to vote, but make sure your neighbors registered. 
um, drive people to the polls if they feel more comfortable doing that. Make sure the people in your family have already secured their mail-in ballots. So there really is no shortage of work for any of us to do. That's not specific to um, black women. And I know that we're talking about this through the lens of black and white, as often happens with uh, diversity. But I should also say um, that there are in all communities of color, there is a moment where everyone can can lock arms and, and join, and, and even among progressives or like-minded people. The Asian American demographic is the fastest growing demographic in America. Uh, for the first time this year, the Latinx voting block eclipsed Black voters in terms of eligible voters, not registered voters. Native Americans in different pockets across this country shape federal elections. And certainly white women have a hugely important role um, in changing and shaping the narrative, um, overwhelmingly in Republican politics, but really everywhere. And so I, I, I don't want to give anybody a pass in, in saying that there's, you know, only work for, for some and not for others. Everyone at this existential crisis in America's history, everyone has a little work they can do to make this a better society and make sure that our fellow countrymen are on equal footing. I'm so grateful that you said that. And you're right. It, it is accountable and responsible for all of us to take part in this. So question, and I think I know the answer to this, but you're the expert and I want to honor your expertise here. I really heard you loud and clearly when you say it's not just the black vote, right? We have all of these populations within the black vote that we honor in the Caucasian population, like white suburban moms, right? But it's just right. this massive black vote and that's not fair. Is the same discrimination happening with our Asian voters or Latin next than our Native Americans. Yeah, yeah same Definitely. kind of blanket. I mean, particularly in the Asian American community, um, Asian American Pacific Islander community, because um, there are so many different nationalities within that umbrella. Um, you know, you have South Asian, uh, you have uh, people who are from Laos, you have people for, who are from Vietnam, and within each of these communities um, are their, their own um, social norms and, you know, perspectives that are shaped. Same with the Latinx community. You know, you have um, different challenges for people from Argentina versus people from Mexico versus people from Spain. And so I really think there's just been a lack of curiosity about our fellow countrymen. Even though people were born here, their lineage matters, you know, the, yeah. the rearing they got from the, the ancestry matters. And so um, again, when the master narrator is white and looks at everything bounced off that, when the master narrator centers whiteness around everything, no one else is afforded the lens to say we are individual and diverse within our own communities. And so, you know, that's challenging. And I, I think, you know, I, some people are resistant to, to this moment because I think people get defensive and they're like, well, you know, I'm not racist and I support everybody and I believe in everybody. And it's like, yeah, well, nobody's saying that the yeah. indictment is not on individuals. The indictment is on the system, the people yeah. who designed this to exclude people. And because everyone benefit from this system, uh, then what was your part in the system? How can you dismantle it and how can you help rebuild it? to honor your fellow countrymen, because we're all in this together. We all have to share this space together and we are all suffering under this administration together right now, even if those who don't know it. 
I appreciate your positivity and saying, hey, let's all take part in rebuilding as well. Let's talk about gerrymandering because it's hugely problematic and particularly for people of color and their vote. So what are some things that citizens listening can do to actually help, right? I think sometimes we feel like, gosh, this is such a big systemic issue. How can I make an impact at a local level? Sure. So um, gerrymandering is hugely important. And I will say partisan gerrymandering is actually not illegal. It likely should be, but it isn't. Racial gerrymandering, however, absolutely is illegal. And so that is the challenge that former Attorney General Eric Holder is taking up. Um, He runs an organization, the NDRC, National Democratic Redistricting Committee, where he's working with um, local communities on the ground. So that would be a great first step. People can contribute or they can offer um, their services. And as we saw in, in North Carolina, the Supreme Court said that the districts were so gerrymandered to dilute the power of Black voters that it was done with surgical precision. And wow. so again, we have to be careful about the narrative that you know, oh, in 2016, Black voters didn't show up because Hillary couldn't rebuild the Obama coalition, and that's that. Well, that's not exactly true. We have to follow that up with GOP-led voter suppression. We have to follow that up with the state legislatures dicing up districts with surgical precision to dilute Black voters. We have to follow that up with foreign election interference, specifically targeting Black voters. And so when we look at it from that landscape, um, then that gives us a better, a more accurate narrative about the things that are happening uh, in, in our politics. So with gerrymandering, you can talk to your state and local um, representatives. A lot of that happens at the state legislatures. And again, Eric Holder is bringing lawsuits and, and challenging um, a, a lot of the ways that districts are drawn up, um, which will happen again. I mean, look, the census is a hugely important piece of this. So everyone needs to fill out those census reports and, and get them in because that will determine determine how many representatives your state has. And so that's why there's this concerted effort to depress the turnout and participation in the census. So the power of the people have to rise above the few uh, the, the few wannabe dictators with the bullhorn. You have to leapfrog over that and use your own intellect, your own intelligence and say, well, I know that I want my community counted in the census. So let me make sure I fill this out So we don't have this issue of gerrymandering uh, to continue to depress our civic engagement. So I have a question for you about how the media has become so polarized. And by that, I mean liberal, conservative, and, you know, every every station, every outlet, every venue for media has its own flavor. And it seems that years ago, and I don't want to be simplistic, but the news was more neutral, right? It was Switzerland, here are the facts, and you can interpret as you wish. So is that all for ratings? Because it seems more commentary than it does strict news reporting. Yeah, so I have a few opinions on that. And so with respect, I would say that the news has never really been neutral. So imagine Mm. if you were somebody on uh, the receiving end of systems of white supremacy, imagine how you may have felt watching the news in the 60s. If you were someone who was receiving on the receiving end of police brutality, imagine how watching the news was for you in the 80s during the quote unquote war on drugs, you know, or during the the King, um, the Rodney King brutality. And so uh, I, I have never, I don't recall a time where news has necessarily been neutral. I think that there have been periods in time where news Um, has centered one perspective and was very resistant to centering any other perspective. And I think we still see a lot of that. In terms of partisan journalism, look, I I mean, I'm hesitant to put 
um, what Fox News does in the same category as other people who may be partisan. I think, you know, there is there is a danger to outlets like Fox News and Sinclair Broadcasting. Um, but I also think there is a danger to not having a place where you can just hear the facts. I do opinion journalism, which means I inform people. That's always my first priority. But I also offer my perspective and opinion. I think there is space for people um, to just report the facts. But even that, I have to tell you, gets murky. Because if someone is saying, I'm here, I'm in the middle of the road, I'm just here to report the facts. Well, the facts, uh, you know, if Donald Trump says, uh, hydrochloroquine can can cure the cor- coronavirus, can cure COVID nineteen, and a reporter feels it's just their job to say what Donald Trump says. I would have to cry BS on that and say, well, wait a second, let's follow that up with facts that show that's actually not the case. You know, follow that up with data and trial studies and other doctors and experts. And so, you know, I, I think at a time where people go out of their way. To be Switzerland, as you say, um, or to be neutral, um, I, I think that has also been damaging. So, you know, the partisanship has been damaging, being too neutral has been damaging, and not centering the rising majority of the United States has been damaging. So I really feel like the media landscape can use a lot of work. Yeah, I hear you. And the reality is, what is the word fact anymore, right? It, it doesn't right. carry any any clarity or gravitas because we're hearing such fake news and, you know, false statements on a regular basis. So yeah, it's, it's terribly confusing. So Definitely. you are an extraordinary woman who is leading the charge for African-American voices in the media. What do you want to leave us with, Tiffany, as, as we leave today and, and think about reading your book and becoming more involved? What's the, what's the one message you want to share with this global audience? I would say um, that people here in the United States are trying um, their best and that sometimes what you see in the media um, is not always representative of who we are as a country. I think the overwhelming majority of people in the United States wants um, a government that serves um, and protects and celebrates uh, this great country we live in. Um, But we are challenged. Our democracy is being tested as it's never been tested before. And I would just say, stay tuned because we're at the precipice of something. And whatever um, happens after November, I don't know if we'll know who the next president is at that point. I think we may have another Bush v. Gore situation. But whatever comes next, we will be the uh, the architects of rebuilding this democracy. So true. Tiffany Cross, I learned so much from you today. I am truly grateful for you. I love your book. It's called Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. And of course, it's available worldwide on Amazon and at major book retailers. But you and I celebrate those independent bookstores, so we do hope you'll go check those out as well. Tiffany, I wish you continued success. Thank you for sharing your voice and for being such an important part of this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and even better, leave us a review because this helps new audience members find us online. 
me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening.